they are, uh, we're going to be in Romans chapter 9, but Sarah, if you've got that picture, if you could put that up on the screen. Um, I'm not sure how well you can see this, but this is a map of North America as envisioned by Spanish explorers. Uh, it's from the 1660s, actually. But it's based on explore, a couple of uh, Spanish exploratory expeditions. Uh, one was sent by uh, Hernan Cortez in 1533. He sailed up the west coast of Mexico into the, uh, along the Baja, what we know today as the Baja Peninsula. Uh, and uh, he was killed by the natives, and so he never made it up to the top of that. And then Cortez himself took another expedition two years later, but he ran out of supplies before he got to the head of the bay and found the Colorado River there. And then there was another expedition in 1592 by another Spaniard named Juan de Fuca. He led an expedition uh, that came in from the, to the northwest and he found what we now know as Vancouver Island, but they believed they were connected. And so from the 1530s until uh, the year 1774, when another Spanish expedition across the Southwest confirmed this to be true, California and all of the West Coast of America was believed to be this massive island out in the Pacific Ocean off the main continent off the main landmass. Uh, and this, so this persisted for 200 years, almost, an, uh, you know, for actually before uh, what we now know as the United States of America was founded until virtually independence. This was believed to be reality, that California and the entire West Coast had a giant island out in the Pacific Ocean that they called California. Okay, now some of you may be thinking, you know, that's a heck of an idea. We could just divide that off, <laughs> you know, make it its own little insane asylum over there, right? <laughs> but, uh, um, but in reality, it is attached to the mainland, okay? But they, these guys for 200 years operated by the wrong map. And the longer you live with the wrong map, the harder it is to come to the, conclu the, the correct conclusions about reality, right? Uh, well, so some of you are, are at this point are probably wondering, okay, well, that's interesting, but what does cartography have to do with Christianity, right? And specifically with Romans 9, where we are today. And the point I'm trying to make is this, that a lot of people, even a lot of Christians, believe a lot of things that are not true. Not because they have the wrong physical map, but because they have the wrong mental map. And so maybe they have been taught uh, a lot of things that weren't biblical, or they have, been, they have some preconceived ideas about what God is like and how sovereign He is when it comes to our salvation. And so they, they just can't square what they already believe with what the Bible actually says. And that's particularly relevant uh, when it comes to Romans chapter 9, because Romans chapter 9 is not hard to understand, 
But it is hard for some people to square with what they already believe about God. So I want to explain to us what um, Romans 9, in fact, does teach and then uh, and show it to you and we're going to spend about three weeks in Romans chapter 9 actually um, it's not hard to understand but it is some heavy sledding and so if you uh, feel yourself a little lost um, that's okay but you need to embrace what the Bible actually says about God and about his sovereignty and about his plan uh, because this is the correct map. Amen? This is the correct map. So, um, so let's, uh, before we dive in, let's just pray and ask God to guide us through His Word. God, our Heavenly Father, uh, You are bigger and more amazing and more in- incomprehensible than we imagine. Father, I pray we would not keep you in some little box that we have in our mind, but show you to be the the free and sovereign God that the Bible speaks of. And Father, help us to see you correctly, with the right lenses, according to the right map of your word. Father, help us to understand these things about you. And we ask for your Holy Spirit to intervene as your word is proclaimed in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Paul says this, um, verse uh, 1 to 5, we want to look at these. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing, unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race according to the flesh is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Now one of the things you need to know about Romans 9 is you need to pay close attention to this introduction. A lot of people read Romans 9 as if it is some kind of a theological treatise where Paul is giving us simply instruction and trying to help us figure out God. But what he is actually doing is answering a very anguished question which is this, why isn't my family member saved? Why aren't the people that I love, the people that I care about, the members of my people, my family, my tribe, my nation, why aren't more of them believers in Jesus Christ? That's what's at the heart of these five verses, is that question. If if Jesus came to be the Messiah of Israel, how come there aren't more Jews in the church? Paul's a Jew. He feels this. Right down in his bones. Amen? 
And I bet some of you have asked the same question. My son, my daughter, my mom, my dad, my brother, my sister, we all know who Jesus is. My kids grew up in church. My brother heard the same messages I heard. My brother read the same Bible that I did, right? My sister, my parents, they all heard that same thing. So how come they're not believers? Paul is writing this very, he's writing this chapter to answer that very painful question that some of us feel at a visceral level because we fear for those people. We know what the Bible says about those who reject Christ and it pains us. We know that if these folks continue to reject Christ to the end of their life, what will happen to them? That they will be lost forever. And Paul feels that pain so deeply. He says in verse 3, he says, if I had a choice, I would rather myself be cut off from Christ myself. Meaning, I would rather go to hell personally that my people, my nation, could be saved. Is that possible? No. It's not possible. But that's how deeply Paul feels this pain. He would rather go to hell forever than see members of his own family, members of his own nation go there. This is not a cold theological discussion. In other words, this is visceral stuff. And it's made more, more painful for Paul because these people whom he loves have been so tremendously blessed by God. Amen? And he gives just a list of blessings they have received. These, the nation of Israel was and is God's chosen people. He are the, he, they are the ones whom God chose out of all nations on the world in the world, not because they were the best, not because they were the brightest, not because they were the most wonderful, but simply because God loved them. He chose them. And as a result of being chosen, they received tremendous blessings. They are the original nation whom God adopted as His sons. In the same way that Paul describes us being adopted in Romans 8, Israel was adopted as God's sons. Paul says theirs is the glory. That's a reference, I think, to the Shekinah, the, the, the visible manifestation of God's presence that led Israel through the wilderness wandering and set above the temple from the days of Solomon all the way to the days of Ezekiel when it departed. You could actually go to Israel and you could, you could worship at the temple and you could see the glory cloud of the presence of God resting above the temple. You could see it. He says theirs is the glory. That's what he's talking about. God made covenants with the nation of Israel. He made the first one with Abraham. 
And then he passed that on to Isaac. And then to Jacob. And then there was another covenant made on the mountain with Moses. And then another covenant made with David. And these were all members of that nation. They were the patriarchs that Paul mentions. God gave them the law through Moses. He made promises. And it was through these people that those promises were fulfilled. And most of all, the greatest fulfillment was the promise that the Messiah would come through them. And He did. Amen? And He was not just another earthly king. He is God in the flesh. He says, who is God over all? Blessed forever. So in other words, it isn't that, it isn't that, that God inhabited a man who was pre-existing. It's that God took onto Himself a human nature, but he rem- the person of Christ remained God for the entire time He was here. And He is still God now. Imagine, through your people, through your nation, through your family, these are the blessings that you receive. And despite all of that, the mass of the nation of Israel has rejected Christ. There are believers in amongst them. Lots of them. But out of 14 million Jews in the world today, far less than 10% of them follow Jesus. In fact, it's barely 1% of them follow Jesus. As nations go, you don't get more blessed than this. And yet, they rejected Jesus. And some of you can tell similar kinds of stories within your own family. They grew up in church. They read the Bible. They got got baptized, maybe, even. They heard the Gospel. Multiple times, dozens of times, thousands of times over the course of years. And yet, when it comes to Jesus today, they speak of their faith in the past tense. You feel this? What is the answer to that question? Well, Paul gives us three answers, actually, in this chapter. He's going to give us one this week. We're going to get a couple more over the following weeks. So if you want to hear them all, you've got to show up. All right? <laughs> uh, so from the Department of Shameless Plugs, here you go, right? You've got to keep coming to church, and you've got to hear this, all right? But here's another aspect of this. Part of what Paul is also trying to answer is this is people who may look around and see all these blessings that were given to Israel and go, well, how, if, if the majority of them are not among God's people, then how do you know, Paul, that all the things you told us were going to happen to us in chapter 8 are going to happen? How do you know that? Those blessings didn't mean salvation for Israel in large measure. So how do you know they'll mean means salvation for us. 
Let's look at this. A little further. This is the first answer that Paul gives. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac your offspring shall be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise that are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, about this time next year I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had not done anything, had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. And as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Now, look, look first of all at verse 6. Uh, first thing that Paul says by way of an answer is this. He states unequivocally, God's promises have not failed. God's promises have not failed. And the remaining verses are Paul's explanation to tell us how that can be in light of the fact that the majority of Israel to this day are not followers of the Messiah whom they were promised and, and from whom he came. And the first reason why is that a person's bloodline does not determine their eternal destiny. You want a, just a general principle a person's bloodline does not determine their eternal destiny. Simply being related to someone who, whom God has chosen does not necessarily mean that, that every such person is also chosen and loved and saved by God. And he gives us three examples of this that and that prove that using the patriarchs. The first one here is in verse 6 where he says, not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. In other words, uh, meaning, being a descendant of Jacob and being a member of the nation ethnically doesn't make you rightly related to God. And we might first of all go, hold on, wait a minute. But you recognize that intuitively if you know your Bible. You remember King Ahab? Remember him from the Old Testament, right? One of the most wicked kings the nation ever had. He was an idolater. He married a woman who was an idolater. He led an entire ten tribes of the nation into idolatry and to killing the prophets of God. They have a giant showdown on Mount Carmel between the prophets of Ahab, the prophets of Baal, the false god whose worship he had import, imported from the Canaanites who lived to the north, and Elijah, the prophet of God. They have this big showdown. First Kings 18, if you've never read it, you need to read this story, right? Because you get to see Elijah mock these prophets that their god must be stuck in the bathroom because he can't answer by fire. It's fantastic. It's a great story, Right? But Ahab was a descendant of Jacob. Amen? Ahab was a descendant of Jacob. 
or to move it a little closer to home. You remember who opposed the Lord most during His ministry? The scribes and the who? Pharisees, right? The people who were also what? Descended from Jacob. And they knew the law. And they understood their Bible. And they had all the right, the right bloodline. But were they believers in Jesus? No, they were not. In fact, they were the conspirators directly responsible for putting Him to death. Were they believers? No. Having the right bloodline does not make you necessarily a member of the people of God. And in case we don't quite grasp his meaning, Paul explains a little further in verses 8 and 9. Not every child of Abraham was part of God's covenant people either. If you remember the book of Genesis, you remember Abraham had a, a relationship with a woman named Keturah. And she, he had a number of sons with her. They became the Midianite tribes that lived in what's now Saudi Arabia. He also had uh, Operation Handmaiden, right, going on. He and Sarah got together and thought this would be a brilliant idea. We'll help God out. We'll have a son in our old age. But we'll have it with Hagar, the Egyptian servant girl. And they did. They had Ishmael. And from them come all of the Arab nations of the world today. Does God have a... Does God have a plan? Yes. But what did he say? He said, it's through Isaac that the promise is going to come. Not through all these other sons. Not through all these other nations. He says about this time next year, it's going to be the, the son you have with Sarah that will be the child of promise. going to be the child of promise Isaac and then it's, he mentions Isaac Isaac and Rebecca remember had two sons twin boys and they're fighting in her womb remember and God the text says before they were born before either one had done anything good or bad God made a statement he said the older boy is going to serve the younger boy. Now when you're talking about twins, you're talking minutes, right? But nonetheless, the first one to come out was regarded as the firstborn son. And that was Esau. The younger son is Jacob. And as you're reading their story, uh, as you're reading the book of Genesis where these stories are present, you don't, as you're reading about Jacob, think, well, obviously here is the man of God. <laughs> The dude had four wives, among other things, right? He lies, cheats, and steals everything he can do. He is always trying to tilt the table his direction, right? For the entire story, until he's an old man, and finally he has become a worshiper of the true God toward the end of his life, right? But it is not because he was such a shining example in contrast to his heathen brother Esau. Right? God chose 
Jacob and made him a man of God. But not every child that was descended from Isaac was a man of God, even though they had the same parents. This is pretty tough. I want to look at these two phrases here at the end of this chapter or this section that get, need some further explanation. The first one that I want to show you forms the tail end of verse 11 where the Scripture says here, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of Him who calls. Let me fill that in a little bit more. Explain what that means. What Paul is saying here is that God sovereignly chooses and saves for Himself people whom He wants. And it is not based on them, and it is not based on their goodness and their behavior, but simply based on God's own sovereign choice. In other words, God saves people not because they are good, but because He is. And that's what He's saying to you. If you do not have room in your theology for a salvation with which you contribute nothing, you need to make an adjustment. You got the wrong map. You got the wrong map. God is the one who saves from first to last. And He chose you not because you are good, but because He is. Amen? You and I are wicked and deserve to go to hell on a rocket ship. And in fact, we would be happy to go there apart from God's overriding of our will and our rebellion and our sin and making us His people. Uh, also want to look at verse 13. It's a quotient, uh, quotation from the book of Malachi, chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, uh, where God says, Jacob I love, but Esau I hated. Now, you need to be careful how you interpret that. Okay? The word hatred there is a Semitic expression that means not hatred, but loved much less. Okay? Uh, loved so much less in comparison that it looks like hatred. Let me give you another example. This is on the lips of Jesus as he's speaking. Uh, Luke chapter 14, verse 26. Jesus says this If anyone comes after me and does not hate his own father and mother, and wife, and children, and brothers, and sisters, and yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Does Jesus mean all y'all who are Christians need to start hating your family? <laughs> right? No, he doesn't mean that. Right? All y'all who are Christians need to hate yourself. No, he didn't mean that. He's saying that Jesus needs to have, so, have first place in your life to such a degree that every other relationship, including with your own life, is so far secondary to not even be in the same race. Does that make sense? 
he is saying, I so extravagantly loved Israel, loved Jacob, that in comparison, my relationship with Esau and his people looked like hatred. Make sense? All right. Hope that does. And I know this is not an easy passage. This is not a this is not a passage where you're going to read this and you're going to go, man, pastor, I just came out of here so encouraged. This was great, <laughs> you know. Um, but it does answer for us some very important questions. It answers us. Have God's promises failed if sufficiently large numbers of people reject Christ? The answer to that question is no. God's promises are still good because it isn't a bloodline that determines the composition of God's people, but God's sovereign plans and purposes. Amen? It's not a bloodline. No, it's not being part of a family that loves Jesus that makes you part of God's family. It's being called by God into membership in His family that makes you part of His family. It is an attending church. Going to church does not make you a member of God's family any more than going into your garage makes you the car. It is a response to God who calls you into life with Him. God doesn't pick out the good people to save. He does not pick out the good people to save. He saves wicked people and He makes them good according to His plans and purposes to fulfill all that He has sovereignly planned and purposed from eternity past. And he does not explain why he picks. In fact, you can read the rest of the chapter if you want, if you find an answer for why God picks how he does, except that he's God and he gets to come see me because I'd like to see it. it. He does say it's not tied to us and it's not tied to our good works. So that no one can say, well, you know, God, of course, saved me. Because, I mean, I had so much to offer. I mean, obviously, right? Right? I mean, it's clearly based on my wonderful specialness that God saw that I was, you know, a glow worm, as Winston Churchill said, right? (laughs) That I was a glow worm, and therefore, God reached out and saved me. No. Has nothing to do with that. And has everything to do with God's sovereign purposes and plans. And he saves according to his will for reasons that are his own. And so we can only say, God saved me, not because I am great, but because he is great and he is good. And so our salvation should never make us arrogant. It ought to be received instead and and enjoyed and celebrated as a magnificent gift of sovereign grace. Because that's what it is. It had nothing to do with me and how wonderful I was, but simply who God is and how wonderful He is that He saves the likes 
of me and you. Amen? Now, other thing, I want to circle back to this painful question that we asked earlier. Why doesn't God save all of our friends and relatives and people we know and love? Ultimately, we do not know why. Any more than than we know why God saved Jacob instead of Esau. Even though both had the same parents. But what we do know is this, that God is good, that He is loving, and that He is saving people for Himself to accomplish His purposes for us and for the world. And on top of that, we have no excuses to give up on anybody. Right? We can't look at somebody's life today and go, well, they're clearly not among the elect because look at their life and they reject Jesus and uh, I guess they're going to hell. We don't have a reason to give up on anybody. As long as they're alive, God still has a plan and purpose for their life. Amen? And one of the great things about knowing that God chooses those who will be saved is this. It's like fishing in a pond in which you know the fish are biting. Because God is going to call people because He already knows who they are that are going to come to faith. And so when you throw your hook in, you know that sooner or later someone is going to bite. Because God has His people in the pond. Amen? You're going out to fish for men and they're biting. How many fish are you going to catch? I don't know. But the fish are biting. Because God sends them to the hook. We don't have to give up on anybody because we don't know when someone will come to faith or if they will come to faith. Sometimes in the plan of God, people come to faith very late in life. I've seen people in their 80s and 90s, and, and as they lay dying at the hospital, be saved and come to faith in Christ. We don't know what somebody's story is or how it ends, but we do know that God is a God of love and that He has good plans and good purposes and that He will see them fulfilled in each individual person, whatever His plan for them is. And so what we need to do is trust Him uh, with His plans and His purposes and to be obedient to what He's called us to do. Amen? We do. Uh, God has amply demonstrated that He is trustworthy. And so we need to trust Him and follow what He's told us to do in the meantime. Until the day when we understand His plan more completely. And we don't understand it now, but one day we will. So let's pray, and then let's sing. God, our Heavenly Father, we thank You that Your plans are good. We thank you that you have some things about you which are mysterious and hard for us to understand, hard for us to get our arms around, so that we know that you are not a mere projection of our own thoughts, but you are the God who reveals himself through the Spirit in your word and tells us about how you really are. Father, I pray that our thoughts would 
increasingly become your thoughts and that we might worship you as the sovereign God who saved us and pulled us out of the fire though we had every reason that we should still go there. Father, we thank you for your sovereign grace, your divine mercy, which rescues all kinds of people from every family on earth to be yours. And Father, we thank you and give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen.